0: All right, well, we continue on to the story of Ruth um, this morning. As we've talked about before, Ruth is a, is a play of sorts, a four act play. Chapter one is Act One, and chapter two is Act Two, and we come to Act Three uh, this morning. And the story of Ruth is so compelling and is so beautiful. It's in, in, in some ways, as we're going to see in the, this week and next week, and really beginning last week, is that the, the story of Ruth rises upwards and to a very, very happy ending. A very happy ending. It, almost kind of like one of those happily ever after sort of stories. And the way we tell stories in our culture, we, we've done it in two different ways. One we have taken, um, or we used to take what was the happily ever after approach. The kind of the Disney World model. It would say, it's a, a romanticism to our stories that told stories that seemed to float up in the air, but didn't, didn't, didn't really deal with reality. But we are beyond that in a postmodern world. We are a, a people who live in reality. We are a people who understand that life is hard and tough. We are people who have gone from romanticism to cynicism, is how we've gone. So much so that you, you see the stories in the movies today and many of the stories, they don't end with happy endings, they purposely end with questions. They end with darkness, they end with nihilism, they end with cynicism and this is really the two options we have in the stories of the world. The stories of the world can tell us a romantic, unrealistic, fairy tale story or it can tell us a story that is cynical, that is harsh that is dark, and that really doesn't lead to much of anything. But the story of Ruth is what we're going to see is it does lead to a happy ending, but it does so in the world of reality. It doesn't, it doesn't do so overly quickly, and it doesn't do so without sacrifice and pain. You see, if we think in terms of the whole story of Ruth and Naomi, and we look at the redemption that is going on here, we have to see it as being multiple steps that last week we saw the, the first fruits of the redemption that is coming into their lives. That it is wonderful to look at the story of Ruth and Naomi after last week and see... Isn't that wonderful? Because of Boaz, they were provided food and they're not going to starve to death. That's great. That God has provided them. They, they're, these two women and widows are going to live together. They're going to have food and it's going to be okay. But if you remember back to Ruth chapter 1... And we talked about how dire the situation was for Naomi... The issue for her was not just that she was without protection and without provision. What was really devastating to her life is the fact that on her watch, Elimelech's family line is coming to an end. That she is a woman without a future. That she is a woman who, if she dies today, has no children. She, in other words, she is in a famine not only in regards to actual food, but she has a genealogical famine. She has no fruit, no harvest, no children that have come after her. And so what we see here is that she needs a salvation. And if the Ruth is going to actually tell a story that is beautiful and is full of actual redemption that she longs for, it's going to go beyond merely food and provide her something that it goes beyond the grave. A redemption that, that, that brings her children in a line, a family line, that moves beyond the grave. And that is a question that we have. The question for us about the story of our lives is this. Is God's redemption in our life, is it about merely giving you your best life now? Is it about providing you good food and a good life today? Or is the redemption that God is providing for us in Christ Jesus, is it a redemption that goes and extends beyond your death, that is extend beyond the grave and this morning, what I want to see in all three characters, both all, all three, Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz, is because then this is the bridge chapter of how we go from a kind of very earthy, nice story about some women being provided food to a story that is about redemption that extends beyond the grave. And that happens not in a fairy tale sort of way, but through an act of selfless love on all three parts. That the means by which we see redemption come about through love is not simply through physical provision, but it is found in selflessness. Selflessness. That is the through line of this text. And it's what we see is consistent in all three characters in this chapter. So we're going to look at all three characters this morning and move through the text systematically looking at each of the characters. And the first character we'll see, and the first person we acting, see acting this morning is Naomi. In verses 1 through 7, we see Naomi's plan. Let's read that together. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, she's speaking to, to Ruth, "'My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may go well with you? "'Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were?' all that you say, I will do. And so she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drinking and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Here we see Naomi's strategy. If you remember where the story of Naomi where we ended last week is Ruth brings home quite a large pile of food. In um, one day's gleaning she brought back what is essentially two weeks worth of a salary of grain. And this is now, we've now skipped forward about seven weeks to the end of the barley harvest is the scene here. And what we find here is that Naomi is a woman who has radically changed from where she was at the beginning of chapter 2. Right? The, the arc of the story for Naomi is she, she, she goes, it's, everything is awful. And we see that in chapter 1. She is a woman who has described herself as Mara, as bitter, as empty, as forsaken. And, and at the beginning of chapters 2, what we see in Naomi is, do we see Naomi acting and doing much? No. She is a woman who is in the the throes of depression. She is one who is acting entirely passively. She is portrayed as as what we would think is a classic depressed person. It almost appears at the beginning of of chapter 2 like she can't get out of bed. Ruth is the only one who seems to have a plan and a strategy for life. Who says, I'm, who has a will to live. But what we see here at the beginning of chapter 3 is because of a little bit of hope, because of a little bit of provision, by God, through Boaz and through Ruth, that her hope now finds a strategy. That hope, hope only, only hope breeds strategy. That when people who, who, have, who don't strategize are people who are hopeless. The sheer fact that Naomi has, has a strategy here who is getting up and saying, I'm going to create a plan. I'm going to create a scheme to move forward in life. That shows that she now has some sort of hope. One of the reasons why you need to speak to one another of the gospel is to give one another reasons for hoping in God is that only hopeful people are those who are strategically and enter, with great energy engaged in God's work in the world. And what we see is hopefully, hopeful people are those who get actively involved in what is happening here. And that is what Naomi does. She's getting actively involved in God's world. And so what what is Naomi's plan? And what is the purposes of Naomi's plan that we see in verses 1 through 7? Well, it says it in verse 1. What is her purpose? It says in verse 1 there that her purpose, she says, should I not find a home? Or literally means a, should I not find a place of rest or shalom for Ruth? where you will be well provided for. In other words, what Naomi is concerned for here, after just a little bit of provision, she begins to think for Ruth and care for Ruth. After Naomi dies, she understands that here, her Moabite daughter-in-law is going to be left destitute and will remain alone in Bethlehem. Ruth has promised to to remain in Bethlehem even after Naomi has died. And Naomi is going, wait a second... I have a responsibility as the one who has connections here, who is from Israel, to make sure that this young woman is not left lonely and destitute after the time of my death. Now the key to understanding the selflessness, though, of what Naomi does here is you must see it in some of the details of the words. At the end of chapter 20, remember Naomi brings this great realization to Ruth about who Boaz is. And chapter 2, verse 20, she's really excited about the fact that they have food. That's great. But she's more excited about the fact that what? That Boaz is a, she describes him as a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer. This is a man who was a technical description of that Boaz is a at least is a family member, maybe distant but a family member nonetheless who may be able to bail their family out of their financial difficulty who may take it on the responsibility of caring for them but in chapter 3 verse 2 when naomi begins to make her plans here and when she sends ruth to boaz she does not describe him as the redeemer as the kinsman redeemer she merely describes him as a relative She simply points out here what Naomi is saying is that she is taking the whole idea of the kinsman redeemer off the table and she is looking at Boaz as merely as God's provision as a husband to Ruth. In other words, what I want you to see here is Bo, Naomi is not thinking of herself. If she was thinking of herself, she would look at Boaz as being the kinsman redeemer. She would say, Boaz is going to be the means by which my family line is going to be continued. Boaz is going to be the means by which my family land is going to be repurchased back from debtor's prison. And I'm going to be able to have land and provision once again. But Naomi's agenda here has nothing to do with her own personal needs. It has to do with Ruth's needs. And what I want you to see here is the sacrifice that Naomi is, uh, is, is putting before Ruth in this. That, she is, that Naomi is being utterly selfless in this move. Ruth, remember, is Naomi's only means of provision. Ruth is Naomi's essentially covenant friend. Ruth is Naomi's means of God's provision in her life. The sacrifice that Naomi is willing to take here is staggering. She's willing to say, I will give you up. You go and be this man's wife, not to, be a, not to buy back land for me, not to provide me a, a, an inheritance or to provide me heirs, but simply because I want to provide you a place where you will be provided for and where you will find love and affection. And Naomi is willing to give up the only blessing she seemingly has left in this world in the form of Ruth in order to care for Ruth. Naomi is much here like the widow in Jesus' parable, the widow's mite who comes in and has nothing left. And she comes into the temple and she gives to the Lord of the last pennies that she has in this world. And what I want you to see here is in Naomi, in her selflessness, is that she gives not out of her wealth and not out of her riches, but out of her poverty. She's giving all she has. This is selfless love. But it is a strange plan, isn't it? Strange would be the kind word for it. There is actually an enormous amount of sexual tension in this plan. And in fact, most commentators, when you look at the plan of Naomi, it looks at best manipulative and at worst sexually suggestive. And in fact, sexually suggestive is exactly what it is. Let me see if I can just glean some of these things out. You may look at this and just go, well, that's just not good for a woman to propose to a man. That's, that's not the worst of it. No, no. Now, here's what's going on. First, the location of this encounter is at a threshing floor. There is a reason for the term taking a roll in the hay. The place where sexual encounters happen historically in agrarian societies are in places where you can go hide behind large piles of hay. They're seen here as one of a bunch of men who have gathered together, who, have, who love to work hard in the, in the threshing on the threshing floor and then like to play hard at night. They eat and drink. And the common practice of the day is at the good old boy frat party that it is, is they would bring prostitutes in from the local area in order to encourage and enhance this party, and in fact, you, you don't think this is necessarily biblical. This is exactly what God says Israel is in Hosea chapter nine, verse one. God says this about Israel: Do not rejoice, O Israel; do not be jubilant like the other nations, for you have been unfaithful to your God. For you love the wages of a prostitute at every threshing floor. God understands how the culture works. This is what is going. That's the what is going on here. Someone could have seen Ruth and believed that she was playing the role of a prostitute. Second, the language of Naomi's plan and activities that Ruth is supposed to take, take part in is chock full of sexual innuendo. There's three terms here. Naomi tells Ruth to do this. Uncover Boaz's feet and then lay down. Now, you may not see it necessarily in the English, but in the Hebrew, it is quite apparent. The word for uncover is used no less than three times in the, in the Hebrew scriptures for literally, when, literally what it means there is uncovering nakedness. Or to refers to exposing sex organs. Not only that, but in the Hebrew, the word for feet is a euphemism for the same thing. And then finally, lastly, she's supposed to lay down throughout the Old Testament, the scriptures use this as a metaphor speaking of sexual intercourse. Yikes. In other words, what we have here is between a context on a threshing floor and in these three sexually charged works, we have a nocturnal meeting between a man and a woman in secret and that is full of sexual tension. So we have some questions to ask of the text, don't you? I mean, what is going on here? Three questions, or just a couple questions for us. Is Naomi taking enormous risk here in this plan? And in fact, is Naomi using sexuality to manipulate Boaz? The answer to them is yes, maybe, and probably no. Yes, it is risky. Doesn't any wedding or marriage proposal revolve risk? Yes, you are putting yourself out there. Certainly, Ruth could have been rejected by Boaz. Boaz could have shamed her publicly. This is not something that a good young woman does. But I don't think that Naomi's intention here is to use sexuality to manipulate Boaz or to serve Ruth up on some sort of sexual platter. Surely the book of Ruth, and I have two reasons for this for this thought is one is the broader context of Ruth. The, if you read the story of Ruth, certainly about the way these characters are described, you certainly we would not think that the book of Ruth and the bridge, the, the key bridge text here in chapter three, is 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 about two people. One about a viewing taking a woman and viewing her as a sexual seductress, and viewing a man as merely kind of a passive kind of guy who bumbles along through the process. That's not who Ruth and Boaz have been described up to this time. Not only that, it is impossible to reconcile the integrity of Ruth and Boaz in chapters 1 and 2 with what what might be being described here. But even more than that, the key phrase is in verse 4, in the midst of Naomi's plan. That yes, she suggests Ruth to do a very risky thing. That after she come to, comes to underco- uncover his feet and lay down in his feet, that she's supposed to simply allow Boaz to tell her what to do. In other words, that Naomi looks at this and she trusts that Boaz will do the right thing. This is not female manipulation. This is saying, I am making it quite clear what we need. We need a marriage. Let me spell it out for you, Boaz. Now, the ball is in your court. We are not being manipulative. We are not being passive-aggressive. We are being absolutely clear as to what the needs are here. And now you tell us what to do. And she is relying and trusting the integrity of Boaz... To do right by Ruth and by Naomi. The second thing I want to ask is this. Why would the narrator, the story writer of Ruth, choose to keep these sexually charged terms within this scene? I mean, he could have used, I mean, this is supposed to be read to children. Right? This is, these are Bible stories. I mean, you would, the way there's supposed to be these stories where you pass down, you're supposed to share these stories with your kids around the fireplace every night in Israel, passing down the oral stories. And you want to keep this language in here, Mr. Writer of Ruth? Well, I think the reason why this language is here is because our writer understands reality. Understand what is going on here. Ruth is making a marriage proposal. And so our writer is writing about a world of reality in which sexual attraction is inherently a part of that. This may come as a surprise to you, but it's a large component to marriage involves a sexual component. And that is what is going on here. And actually, that God would use sexual attraction in stories, yes, redemptive stories, to bring people together in Hesed commitment, absolutely yes. Because we didn't come up with sexuality, God did. And God redeems it, even though we have broken it. And we are the ones who have run it through the muck. But God has never said it as something that is mucky and icky. Second, I also, I'll point this out further in just a second. This, this kind of tension, this suspense of using this terminology, it's going to provide an opportunity for Ruth to display great redemption to her own heritage. And third, this guy's just a good storyteller. Who doesn't like a little suspense? We've got great sexual tension here. What will happen? He is building up in such a way that you're going, this, this, this doesn't look good. What's going to happen between Ruth and Boaz? And that leads us to the second point, Ruth's proposal, verses 8 and 9. So Ruth comes. She comes and, um, un, 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 and re- reveals, uncovers the man's feet. She lays down next to him. We're not sure if she's horizontal or parallel or however, but she's somewhere in the vicinity of Boaz. And oddly enough, Boaz wakes up. He's cold. It's a desert night. And there's a woman laying at his feet. And lo and behold, remember, there's no light. There's no technology. There's no electricity. And so he goes, who are you? (laughs) A reasonable question. And she answers this in verse 9. I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now here's what I want you to see here. And I want to show you Ruth's selflessness. Ruth gets right to it. And here, once again, we see the integrity. Ruth makes sure very quickly that there will be nothing misunderstood here about what's happening. This is not a one-night stand. There is a clear proposition being made. She tells, and she, in, in doing this, in speaking, Ruth, is she following Naomi's instructions? No, she's going beyond Naomi's instructions. Naomi says, go and uncover his feet, lay down. Wait for him to say, hey, it's Ruth. I'm your family member. Hey, what's up? That's it. Boaz is supposed to take it from here. But Ruth takes charge a little bit and makes clear what she wants from Boaz. And she does so in two phrases. The first phrase is this. Spread your wings over your servant. In common Hebrew usage, this is an idiom for saying, will you marry me? Will you draw me into your protection? This is, it is saying, put your blanket over me. It was a physical and symbolic act of saying, you are mine. It's, I don't know if we have language for this today. It would be like, I'm bringing you into my hearth. I don't know what it would necessarily be. This was a gesture in an ancient Near Eastern culture where a man would, would put his, his blanket over the one he was betrothed to, to to signify that she was set apart and declare that she was to be his future wife. She is asking for this. Boaz, I propose that you propose to me. That's what she's saying. And not only that, but she's actually using Boaz's own blessing in words to her. You may remember this from last week in Ruth chapter 2, that Boaz blesses her in chapter twelve or verse 12 and says this, "...may the Lord repay you for what you have done, and may a full reward be given to you, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge." And Ruth is found in Boaz, a man who up to this point is always willing to be the hands and feet of God to give her refuge and provision. And here she is saying to Boaz, why don't you take it a step further? Boaz, you want to be the physical representation of God's sheltering care for me? Boaz, you want to be God's wings over me? You want to bless me? Then put a ring on it, big fella. That's how you could bless me. And so Ruth is proposing marriage to Boaz, but then, then she makes it things even more clear here as to what she's really after. And the second phrase, for you are a redeemer. And this is that term go well that we saw last week in 2.20. This is the kinsman redeemer term. Ruth wants more than to simply have a husband. She wants a kinsman redeemer for Naomi. And here we begin to see her selflessness. You see, there was a difference between a husband and a kinsman redeemer. A husband in those days. If she was after a husband, then all the children and all the land that she and Boaz would have would be under her name, would be under Boaz's name. But by saying that she wants Boaz to be a kinsman redeemer, she is saying that I, all the children that we would have would be under Malon and Elimelech's family line. And the saying that you're a kinsman redeemer is that you will buy back and you'll pay the debts for their family, so that all the land that you buy for them will be for my children and for Naomi's children. It will not be for any other children that you have. What clearly, what, what Naomi and Ruth are after here is two different things. Naomi wants to bless Ruth by getting her a husband, and Ruth wants to bless Naomi by getting her a kinsman redeemer. Naomi selflessly wants Ruth to find a husband and Ruth selflessly wants a kinsman redeemer for Naomi. In other words, these are two women who are fighting it out to see who can love each other the best. Who can be more selfless than the other. And this is a selfless act by Ruth. Understand what she is offering here. She is not simply saying, hey, will you marry me? But she is, she is raising the bar to an almost impossible standard for Boaz. That no man in his right mind would say yes to this. The the marriage thing, that seems like a pretty far-fetched idea already. But she's saying, Boaz, why don't you have children with me that will never take your name? And Boaz, why don't you buy back the land of Naomi and you won't get to own it. You'll have to take care of it, but it'll never be in your inheritance. And what she's risking here is unbelievable embarrassment and public refusal. And not only that, think about what she is asking for. She is asking for Boaz to have children with her, so that they can be continue Naomi and Elimelech's line. Now, what has Ruth struggled with for ten years, and who would have who would have been blamed for it in her marriage previously? For ten years, she has been a woman who has struggled with barrenness, and in back then, who gets blamed? You see, the narrator of the story blames uh, the the sons of Elimelech, calls them sterile and bent and spent. It's clearly he views it as their fault. It's the male's problem because Ruth has children later on. It's not Ruth's problem, but no one knows this at this point. In other words, what I want you to see here is that in making this proposal to Boaz, she is saying, I am willing to risk the pain and sorrow of seeking to have children again so that I might love Naomi. This is selfless love. And this changes Naomi's life as we're going to see. Selfless love has the power to change life, change lives, and to change stories. And to illustrate that, we, need to know, we don't need to go outside the Bible. We can simply look more deeply at the story of Ruth. And this is where we go with that kind of all that sexual tension. There's actually a story that it's a parallel that's being built with something else that has gone on in Ruth's heritage. You see, Ruth, we might recall, any good Jewish person who's reading the book of Ruth will remember always, 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 that Ruth is a Moabite, And remember back a couple weeks ago when we talked about the history of the Moabites, they began in Genesis chapter 19. And I want you to see there are unbelievable similarities between Genesis chapter 19 and Ruth chapter 3. The history of the Moabites begins this way. It begins with two women, two sisters, who make a scheme and a plan to manipulate a man. And they get a man drunk. So that after he's eaten and drinking, they're going to, in order to continue their family line, going to sleep with their own father, And their scheme will involve this older man. And their scheme will involve the women approaching him in secret while he sleeps, if you look at Genesis 19, on a threshing floor. And what we see, though, in other words, the author is giving us a very intentional parallel. An intentional parallel to show that while Ruth comes from a background of unbelievable impurity, a heritage that is broken and that is disgusting, what we will see here is that she is a woman who will act with absolute purity and absolute integrity. In other words, what she is doing is she is flipping upside down the genealogical story that the Moabites have told She is redeeming her heritage. Not only is she redeeming the future of Naomi's heritage, but she is redeeming her own family and people's past by carrying out here with great integrity and selflessness because selfless and pure love changes lives. And in fact, it changes whole family stories. You see, for so many of you, that's your story. you came from a story of abuse and violence and abandonment. And yet you're being a father who will stay. You're being a father who will care. This is part of my own family's testimony. My father came from an abusive family. My dad, one of his earliest remembers, memories is his own, his own father holding a, a steak knife to his mother's throat. Yet my dad, even though he's a man who has battled with anger his whole life, is a man who loved each of us tenderly. He's rewriting his heritage, and that's what Ruth is doing. And with such selfless love is the labor of what we would call a worthy woman. That's how Boaz describes her in verse 11. A worthy, a worthy woman. He says this, all my fellow townsmen know that you're a worthy woman. That phrase, worthy woman, only appears one other time in Scripture. Can you guess where it is? It's the same place we went last week. It's the main descriptive word for the Proverbs 31 word, woman. And did you know this? In the, in the, in the previous to the New Testament era... Previous it to the, when the New Testament becomes a part of the biblical canon, that the way the Hebrew Bible was ordered, that the book of Ruth came right after Proverbs. In other words, most commentators believe that Ruth is described here as the great example of what a Proverbs 31 woman is. Not an Israelite, a Moabite, a worthy woman. And so the readers are still, though, we're brought to a place of suspense Ruth brings this selfless proposal to Boaz. A Moabite has proposed to an Israelite. A a woman has proposed to a man. Uh, A worker has proposed to to the man who owns the field. A young person has proposed to an older person. Ruth is breaking all the rules. What will Boaz do? We see it in verse 10. We'll read to the rest of the chapter if you have your Bible open. Verse 10 through 18. And he said this, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter, For you have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask. For my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman, and I know, and now it is true, that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. And so she laid at his feet until the morning, but arose before one who could recognize her. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. And so she held it out. And he measured six measures of barley and put it on her. And she went into the city. And when she came to her mother in law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she said, told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty handed to your mother in law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest until he will settle the matter today. What we see here is Boaz makes a promise, a great promise. A great promise Then he provides for Ruth, that he protects her in so many ways. Right, the whole idea of getting up before anybody else and to send her off in the dark is to make sure that no one spreads a bad rumor about them. And then he provides her grain, not only just provide a sign of his provision for her and Naomi, but also so that she'd have an alibi. But not only that, but he—the the key words here that he acknowledges—and it breaks the suspense about how will Boaz react to Ruth. is it comes out right immediately, and he shows his kindness to her. He says Boaz acknowledges that Ruth has been kind to her mother-in-law and says, I bless you, my daughter. Here, Ruth, right, she's in a vulnerable place, and he puts her in a place of protection and, and, and care immediately. But then he acknowledges how wonderful she is. That verse there about how you have made your, this kindness greater than the first because you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. That is not Boaz going, he is not an insecure man. This is not Boaz going, um, um, I can't believe you love me. That is not what Boaz is saying. What Boaz is saying is here, is he acknowledging once again that this is not a love story about us. This is about Ruth's love for Naomi. It's because he says, this is, kindness is greater than the first. Not only have you been willing to come work in the field to provide for Naomi, but now you will give your very life, the future of your life to a man in order to provide for Naomi permanently. Boaz is acknowledging the fact here that Ruth is pursuing a kinsman redeemer instead of merely pursuing a husband. That what she is after is something that is selfless. And he is acknowledging that, that Ruth is a worthy, selfless woman. A quick application here. Words of encouragement matter. They matter. And when you see selflessness, you should point it out. And so when you're in a community group this year and you see selflessness in your community group, you should point it out. Men in particular, you should point out the selflessness of your wives. You should do a fabulous job communicating to her how great she is, that she is indeed valiant and strong, and she labors hard for your family. You should tell them how worthy they are. Men of King's Chapel, we have valiant, strong women here. you got to tell them. you got to tell somebody. Tell them. Sons of King Chapel tell your moms how awesome they are, because you have awesome moms here in this church, and young men in King Chapel, you should be amazed at the young women who are around you. We have young women who share their faith and lead Bible studies and go beyond the maturity of their years to care for others. We should tell them, should all tell you. Carol Clark is a fabulous pastor. Carol Hogan is a fabulous writer of worship music. Tina 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 Hine does a fabulous job of ministering in this church. Aaron Goo loves your children, gets down on her hands and knees to love and care for them. We got we have Melaine Daniels a fabulous evangelist. Zara loves on young women and disciples them so well. You guys are worthy of praise. You're worthy women. I just names a few just to illustrate what we have here. You got to tell somebody. Boaz tells her, and he breaks the tension. He blesses her, but not only that, but then he gives the great answer that we've all been waiting for. Boaz says this, I will do what you ask, and I will redeem you. Now what we hear in a 21st century context is this. We hear a knight in shining armor finds his maid in Manhattan and who supports her family by hard work and says, oh, she's so beautiful, and look how hard she works, and I'm gonna marry her. That's what we hear. That's not what is going on here. That would, that would not capture the half of it, because if you take that approach, you would not see the selflessness in Boaz here. Understand what is going on. Naomi, or Ruth is not asking him to be a husband. She's asking him to be a kinsman redeemer. And that involves unbelievable sacrifice and selflessness. Because in those days an Israelite family had two great fears. The two worst issues were this. Is if your family name were snuffed out and if your family uh, lands were taken from you. And Elimelech's family has run into this, trip, this, this problem on two counts, right? Their land is gone because of the famine. They have probably had to sell it off in order to pay debts. And the death of Elimelech and his two sons threatened the family's name from extinction. And yet in the Mosaic Law, there are actually two laws that help provide for this. To save dying families and to provide ownership within their family. One is called the Leverite Law, which is addressed to where a, if a man died without an heir, then his another brother, a younger brother who was unmarried, could then marry and impregnate his widow, thus carrying on his family name. The Kinsman Redeemer Law focused on land. The Kinsman Redeemer Law was about if a family fell into hard times and they had to sell off their land in order to provide for themselves and to get food for themselves, that a, a relative of some kind could come in and pay off their debts and buy back, redeem their land, to give it back to the family. But both these laws were costly to the one who would take part of it. It was costly to the kinsman redeemer. Because in the first, if when the first brother died and his second brother took his wife and his and had children with them, they would not bear his name, they would bear his brother's name. In other words, you would say, "My name will die so that my brother's name will live." And in the kinsman redeemer part where they redeemed the land, it involved unbelievable financial sacrifice because what they would be saying is, I will take my money, I will sell off part of my land possibly or part of my savings and my wealth to redeem and ransom your land and give it back to you. I don't get anything from it. And in other words, what Ruth is telling to Boaz is this, Boaz, will you marry me? I'm a Moabite woman who has no good background. I come from a bad family. Boaz, will you marry me and have children with me? And oh, by the way, they will not bear your name. Oh, Boaz, will you marry me? Oh, and part of marrying me, that you don't get any kind of money or any kind of dowry. Instead, what you get is you get to buy back Elimelech's debts at your own cost and at your own expense. In other words, what I want you to see here is that Boaz is saying yes to the dress, not in a vapid, kind of romanticized way, but in order to marry Ruth, he has to sacrifice in abundant ways. This is what he's doing here. And one other thing. Boaz is not even a Limelech's brother. He's a distant relative. By law, he's not required to do this. In other words, what we see in Boaz is a man who so sees the goodness and the character of God in the law that he's willing to fulfill the spirit of the law because he sees the gospel in it. What Boaz does here is a call to sacrifice, to be your brother's keeper, to lose at the expense of Elimelech and Naomi's family and for Ruth's sake. And the heart of Boaz is not fueled by some sort of romantic story, by some testosterone or some desire to create progeny for himself, but it is fueled by a Hesed, self-sacrificing passion that compels Naomi to seek a husband for Ruth, that compels Ruth to change the script and seek a kinsman redeemer for Naomi, and now compels Boaz to be the kinsman redeemer for both Ruth and Naomi. He is becoming his brother's keeper. And doesn't that sound so familiar? A brother who would come and redeem you. See, you see what it costs Boaz to enter into marital union with Ruth. And by the way, what does it say? Ruth is a worthy woman. How much more amazing is it that one whose name is Jesus, who calls himself your brother, who would come and say, I am Adam's brother, and I will marry his widowed wife. His children will become mine. And they are not... And Jesus doesn't get a worthy people, does he? Boaz gets Ruth. Who does Jesus get? He gets you. He gets you people. He gets me. Jesus didn't get the Proverbs 31 woman. He got us. And yet he does it. He, Jesus pays the cost to become our brother, to lay down his inheritance, to leave heaven, to come to earth, to, in order to draw us and give us a family line once again. Jesus comes and he says, I will pay the debt of your family, the debt of your sin, the debt of your family line, the debt you were sent in the debtor's prison called hell. That's where you deserve to go, but I will buy you out from it by taking your debts to the cross. And he came and he paid a sacrifice so that so you may come back into his family. Do You see the selfishness and the sacrifice in Jesus being the willing. What it took for Boaz to cast his wings over Ruth, and what it takes for God to cast his wings over you, to call you his and mine, to be your protective one, to call you beloved, is it took the sacrifice of Jesus, your elder brother. Say, so where do you get that brother stuff? Well, Paul talks about it in Romans 8, 29. He says, Jesus is the first fruits among the brothers from the dead. Hebrews two eleven says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. And Hebrews two seventeen says that he has been made like us in every respect so that he might be the propitiation for his brothers. That's who Jesus is. And that's what we come to celebrate here. So it means of drawing you to the table and Andy's gonna take you there in just a second, a story to end this morning. Martin Lloyd-Jones tells the story of a Scottish covenanter girl. This is in the 1680s in Scotland. She's on her way to attend a communion service on a Sunday afternoon. And at that time, um, communion services were strictly prohibited. The soldiers of the King of England were everywhere, looking for these people because they knew there was going to be this communion service by the Covenanters, and they wanted to stop people and imprison them for trying to be, participate in this in this form of worship. And, and she's on her way to this communion service, and lo and behold, she comes around a corner and runs smack dab into a group of soldiers. And they begin to question her, and she knows that she's trapped, and she's, her mind is spinning, and she's wondering what she's going to say to try to get out of this. And when they're inquiring her and questioning her of what, she, what, she's, what she's doing, she finds herself saying this as an excuse as to why she's out. She says, my older brother has died, and they're going to read his will this afternoon. And he has done something for me, and he has left for something for me in his will, and I want to hear them read it. In other words, she's using symbolic language to describe the Lord's Supper. Yes, Jesus is her elder brother. Jesus has died. And in each and every week when we come to a communion service and the will of God will be read out again, where your sins and your debts and your family line, they go away, and you're brought into Jesus' line by his sacrifice. The selflessness of God's love. Let's go to the table. As I pray, those who are serving can come forward. And Andy will, will come and transition us to the table. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that your love is selfless. And Lord, part of coming to the table is we are to examine ourselves, and we just want to acknowledge this that, Lord, our, self, our love is so selfish. It's so, um, it's like thumbs, it points back to ourselves. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, I pray as we come to the table that we would repent of our selfish love, that you'd make us more like Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. But Lord, I pray that you compel us there to that place by revealing to us the beautiful love of Jesus Christ, the great love of our kinsman, Redeemer, who drew us, who came to be our perfect brother, who came to buy us out of and ransom our debts, to come to redeem our family line. Lord, thank you that you're the God who writes redemption stories. And so, Lord, now as your family, all of us in the line of Jesus, come to sit at your table. Would you bless us? So we set aside this table and this this bread and this cup for your use and for your grace. Would your spirit move through it? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.